You're listening to Love and Revolution Radio, covering the heart of change and changes of the heart, featuring stories of ordinary, extraordinary people who are waging struggles for love and revolution. Am I happy in the way that I live? Do I feel compromised in the way that wherever I live? And how can I rectify it? How can I make it better? Wherever I am, how can I welcome life? How can I find fulfillment? How can I be a part of the living? How can I participate in bringing change? True change. This week on Love and Revolution Radio, Dina Eccles joins us to talk about growing change from the ground up and reconnecting humankind to the community of the land. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners near and far. You are listening to Love and Revolution Radio. I'm your host, Rivera Sun, and I am sitting out here in sunny Taos, New Mexico, recording from an earthship in the middle of a snowy desert, because we're at high altitude here. On the line, I have my co-host, Sherry Mitchell. How are you doing, Sherry? I'm doing great, Rivera. It's nice and uh, wintry up here as well in the great state of Maine. Bonobskeg territory. We also have a wonderful guest with us today, Dina Eccles. Dina is a sustainable farmer, an extraordinary blogger. You can find her blog, Let Kindness Win, at letkindnesswin.wordpress.com. Dina is also an organizer for peace. Dina, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Dina, I got the wonderful opportunity to actually come to Echo Valley and visit this sustainable farm that's being run in a very unusual and creative way. Um, and I'll be back there, actually, about the time this show is airing, right after that, for the a weekend workshop and conversation on uh, hope in action. And I'm looking forward to that very much as we're recording ahead of schedule. But, Dina, before we talk about Echo Valley... I actually would love to have you speak a little bit about the recent developments with the mounds up there in Wisconsin and the movement or the endeavor to destroy the mounds and the movement to stop them from actually destroying these. What are the mounds and why should people know about this? Well, the mounds are uh, ancient burial sites and sacred sites of the indigenous who lived here long before any of us were here. And the Ho-Chunk uh, claim that is their ancestry. And there has been a move, as you may know, Wisconsin seems to be open for mining business quite extensively. And sand mining and other things are being uh, sought after here. But uh, they, And so there was an endeavor made to take over some of the mounds and take them on as quarry and who else knows what they were thinking about. But uh, the Ho-Chunk and allies came together, and there was a large uh, protest, I guess, um, request for the government to not allow this to happen, to consider it as a sacred site, 
and um, I was really thrilled to get to be there. However cold it might have been, it was really warm in the hearts of all the people. And clearly, as we marched around the Capitol uh, to the sound of the drums and went inside the Capitol, you could just feel that this was this was not going to happen, that they were not going to be able to proceed. And shortly after we walked away, uh, they were starting to say, yes, it's been dropped. They're not going to consider uh, taking this on. However, one of the things that I just do want to mention is that, you know, one of the reasons that we took it very seriously and wanted to stop it in, in, in its tracks is because every time one of these things occurs where uh, people are allowed to break into sanct- a sanctuary like that or take over some uh, indigenous land in some way, it opens the door for other states and other territories to do similar things. And we've just learned that in Alabama, there will be a mound coming down to allow, I believe, it's a Sam's Club. So this battle that just happened in Wisconsin is just a symptom of something that we all have to stay on guard for. It is, and certainly as an Indigenous woman, as an Indigenous rights attorney, this is something that I'm very familiar with, that these types of issues are actually um, kind of compounding one on top of the other, and there's an incredible attack against indigenous land rights and sacred sites going on right now. Mm-hmm. And so I've been watching the story of the mounds fairly closely. I have some friends who are in the area who are participating in the action there. And I was encouraged to hear that they had decided not to vote on it this session. Mm-hmm. Now, do you have any indication that there might be um, a return to this issue in the next session or if there is any type of executive action that's being planned to override the legislature there in Wisconsin to move this forward? Yeah, I haven't heard anything about that. I can tell you from having participated in the Pinocchies, you know, trying to stop the mining that was considered there, the, uh, the unity of peoples coming together to stand for the environment is developing and growing really strong. So I think they're going to have to find other approaches because I, I just don't, I, there's like a real storm brewing. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I mean like a wall that's saying, no, this is not going to happen here. And I think that the next thing you'll see is even more challenge on uh, the sand mining that's occurring in some of these counties too. So I, I don't see it. If they do come, I don't see their, them being victorious. I think the time, the tide has turned for that. I mean, this is the land of Aldo Leopold. <laughs> this is a place that even the people who may be in desperate mode and need to sell their farms for sand mining or, you know, their mounds so that they can, you know, try to make it financially, they still love the land. And I think if we can keep reaching people with that feeling of look at the resource we have here, look at the beauty we have here, you know, look at the wisdom in maintaining it. I think we can win just on that, on that merit. So I I don't, I don't expect them to come back at it. Not right away. I think one of the powerful things for me, someone who's not from the region and has never actually seen these mounds firsthand is when when the protest was being planned, 
a lot of people started posting photos and images of these mounds and stories about these mounds. <laughs> it was almost uh, like a virtual pre-protest, like a big demonstration of how amazing and treasured these Mm -hmm. Things are these things that we only know from far off places as mounds, which is not the most impressive word we've ever used. But I remember seeing one photo on Facebook of a mound that actually has animal shapes and shapes of figures on it. And it completely reminded me of, I think it's um, the white horse in um, England and then Stonehenge. And what would the outcry be like? If the British government said, we're going to go frack under these sacred sites, we're going to go tear down Stonehenge to put in a quarry, that something was elicited in me about understanding the sacredness of these ancient cultures because of this virtual protest. I thought that was a, a very interesting dynamic of what was going on. And here on Love and Revolution Radio, we actually talk a lot about telling our stories. And that's why we ask people like yourself and Sandy Lyon from northern Wisconsin to actually do come on the show and, and share these firsthand experiences. Now, you mentioned sand, mi uh, sand mining, uh, which is pretty pervasive in your area of Wisconsin, which is south of where Sandy was. The sand mining is being done for fracking, is that right? Correct. Yeah, they need to refill the holes uh, that they're making when they do the the mining for the gases. And uh, you're using sand, and apparently Wisconsin sand is really good stuff for that. And one of the things that happens with these sand mines is that they become basically open pit quarries, but it's sand, it's not rocks. So when the wind comes by, it blows it up in a cloud of of dust, I believe, that also has a lot of silica in it, which is one of the reasons it's it's prized for actually doing mm -hmm. fracking. But then the dust becomes a health hazard for the entire region. Have you and the people at Echo Valley Farm been involved in trying to stop the sand mining operations? We are in Vernon County, which is uh, not being directly impacted, but we have been involved in the particularly Trempolo County and Jackson counties that are being hardest hit um, with people selling their farms. So, yeah, we stay, we have a close ear to it. Uh, educating is really what we try to do. And I still believe that if we can help people, I mean, part of it's the paradigm of money, that people, you know, are always seeking a way to make money. And selling their land and selling their farm for mining, they believe is their right. They, there needs to be an adjustment where we understand that the land does not really, even though you sit on it and you may hold a deed to it, but there's so much more to it than being allowed to do something like that. While we may not be in a land that is allowing sand mining at this moment, we are within the 150 miles that they say that the silicone dust can travel, and um, it is carcinogenic. So, you know, we have every reason to be concerned. Everybody should have a reason to be concerned. But it's a, it's a question of education. People have have become more interested in money at this moment. But I, I don't think it'll stay that way, and I don't think it needs to stay that way. We, it's just a question of letting people fall in love again. Absolutely. And during the show, when we first started, you said that this was the land of Aldo Leopold. There are a couple of quotes of his that I want to mention. One is, that conservation is getting nowhere because it is incompatible with our Abrahamic concept of land. 
We abuse land because we regard it as a commodity belonging to us. When we see land as a community to which we belong, we may begin to use it with love and respect. And I think that that's really key to shifting our consciousness, to evolving us uh, in the direction of love toward one another and toward the land. Mm -hmm. Um, Another quote that I really love of his um, says, there are two dangers in not owning a farm. One danger of supposing that breakfast comes from the grocery and the other that heat comes from the furnace. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is really key to um, some of the work that you're doing because the issue of fracking and fracked gas is directly connected for a lot of people to heat, to, you know, utilizing these um, gases to heat their homes, to run their stoves, to do all manner of things. And when we become disconnected from the source of that and we stop paying attention to how it's impacting the rest of our lives, we put ourselves in very real danger. And um, the same is true when we separate ourselves from our food. And so the work that you're doing is actually reconnecting people to their food as a sustainable farmer, and also reconnecting people to their understanding of and their deep ties to the land that they live in, and that they work on and that they rely upon for their survival. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, I purchased this land in Wisconsin uh, 14 years ago and not quite sure what it was going to be. I knew that I needed to be on land that I could love and care for and that I needed that land to teach me. That was something that my Navajo friend and mentor had said to me, you know, and I, I said, I want to buy some land. And she said, buy it. The land will teach you. And boy, she was so right. Another thing that I've learned in this process is so many of us First off, while I have bought this land, I don't want to own this land. I understand that it takes, it would be more than I, myself, trying to run this property as a farm or an orchard that we have here, um, or even a small family. We've bought into this idea that individuals and families can maintain these farms, and it's not working. So really what we've introduced here at Echo Valley is a community-sustained farm. And it's a, it's a learning center. We're relearning, again, everything that you were just speaking about, Sherry. An opportunity to see, to learn straight, right, right from the land itself. What is it that it needs? How can we best care for it? Not just impose upon it what we think is best. When I bought this land, I wasn't even aware that there was this beautiful apple orchard. It's an heirloom apple orchard, which now supplies us with, uh, apple butters and jams and apple cider and and all kinds of things that help us uh, maintain the land uh, financially. But really, it's, it is that thing of falling in love and finding your passion. And I, I think it's so important that people have that opportunity again to be in nature. And so that, that I mean, as simple as I can say it, that was the idea behind it. And I'm happy to say that it's really working. People have come here from all over the world. And one of the most interesting things that I've seen is people come from Mexico, Japan, Panama, and they say to me, this is just like my home or my grandfather's home. And I realize it's probably not exactly true. (laughs) We're like, our land is similar to theirs, but that feeling of home is. And I think that we uh, we all long for that. 
Now, one of the things you just mentioned was this idea that we've been taught that progressively to shift our idea of farming and living off the land from a communal structure, as in the commons of, of Great Britain and the earlier time periods, to individual farms and crofts, uh, to the settlers and the homesteaders uh, with individuals and small family farms, and that this has led to a whole way of thinking about farming that is actually fairly dysfunctional, you know, and even as we're having a whole movement for family farms and back to the land, that you're really asking people to consider an even deeper layer that it's not families that run farms, it's communities. Can you speak a little bit about how you organizationally structure your farm, Echo Valley Farm, and who is on the farm with you? Okay. Uh, currently, there are seven people living here. Um, that has changed. Sometimes we've had as many as 15 people. We've had families with children. So it's a very fluid thing. How we operate is once people have really committed that they want to be living on the farm, and we have many visitors who come for months at a time, We've had people four, six, you know, months at a time, eight months at a time. But for those people who say, this is what I want to do, I want to be here, I want to take on this particular thing, like we have someone now who's working on Chinese medicinal plants and someone else who runs a commercial kitchen that has begun. The way we operate now is consensus. And I, everybody, it's funny because all the progressives that I talk to about this, they just roll their eyes, you know, oh, consensus, you know, we have to, it doesn't really work because somebody can stop the process just by saying they don't want to participate, you know, or they want to do it differently. But that's the whole point. If we cannot sit down and talk, if we cannot come to a common understanding, then we're going to be, we're going to lose anyway. And it takes time. And that's another thing we've been taught to not do. We've been taught to just have two-hour meetings and rush through everything. And he who talks the loudest pushes, you know, the agenda through. Be able to sit together and really listen to one another and really look at, you know, what is the best thing for all of us, but with the land in mind. And even after we're gone, how can we preserve this place and how can we ensure that other people will benefit in the same way that we have? have appreciated the joy that we have here. How can we do that? And so that becomes the litmus for our decisions. And if it, you know, if we start to make a decision out of some kind of fear or other thing, we stop each other. Somebody stops it and says, no, this isn't how we want to proceed. So our, our, it's very loose. We don't have a big manual to read. The two rules that we run by is respect yourself and everyone and everything else and live as consciously as you can. You know, Dina, I was reading some of your blogs, and there's a story in there that I loved about your mother, about her um, saying that you were going backward in the way that you were doing things, and then she changed her mind over time and came around to recognizing that what you were really doing was living the good life. And I think that that piece is interesting because a lot of people see any type of return to old ways of being um, as being backward and that we're devolving rather than evolving our consciousness to recognize our connection. And what we really need is a return to wholeness in both our food and our communities. And so the model that you're presenting there really gives us this 
clear example of how we can live in harmony with one another and with the land in a way that's beneficial to all, um, I don't want to say users because that's not the right word, but all inhabitants, mm-hmm. both inhabitants of the land and the natural world and the, you know, the other inhabitants of that land and thinking about it in that way, in this really humane, balanced way of living, it's really connected uh, to this idea of consensus because it's a form of true democracy where everyone has a valuable place in the discussion. You're not only speaking for yourself or for your individual silo, you're actually working toward a model that can work for the entire whole. And that whole includes the land. And I think that that is a really wonderful example that a lot of people can follow. And I think that it's important for people to recognize the value of that. And so I was kind of hoping that you could tell us a little bit about your mom's transition and the process that she went through in making that turn from thinking that you were going backward to realizing that you really found where it was at. So can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, well, I can't, I, you know, anybody who knows my me and my mother would say it was not an easy transition because, you know, people want the best for their children and they have ideas about what the best is. Now, mind you, I grew up across the street from a steel mill and my mother lived there, a defunct steel mill, lumber yard, paint factory, and my mother lived there for her 70 years. So when she came here and saw the beauty, the contrast was so great. But at the same time, what she saw was this backward moving, you know, which hurt her. She was like, no, you should have something better than this. You know, I wanted you to have something better than this. But as she would come and visit her, and I would talk to her, you know, it wasn't easy because she was not, you know, a big fan (laughs) for many, many years of my life. Uh, But at the same time, it makes you strong because then you have to learn how can I, this person I love, even though it's not easy. How can I help her to understand? How can we find, without fighting, and how can we reach a point where she can understand what she can feel, what I feel? Because without her, I wouldn't have been here anyway. Without her effort and to, you know, have me. And it was a great effort that she made. So in return, at least I could listen to her. So we started communicating, and we would talk every day. And she would start to say, you know, on, on days like this where it's minus degrees, she'd call me and say, I hear the weather so bad. How are you doing it? And, you know, and I have a fire. It keeps me warm and wood. And, you know, so I would tell her about my day. I would tell her how it went. And she knows that every day I would go home in the evening down to the main house where someone is cooking a ma- marvelous meal. Incredible meals get put out here. And we all laugh and share together. She's experienced that so she can remember it. And it starts to grow on her, and she starts seeing the contrast. And then somebody who was, most people would say, uneducated, I think differently, but in the terms of the world. But she paid attention. She listened to the radio. She learned things. And she started hearing about tainted water. She started, in fact, she start, she got to a point where she would make bottled water, make sure she had bottled water in the house. She would refuse to drink the tap water. By the way, 13 miles away from all the other pollution I just told you about was a nuclear power plant. So she was right on. But she made that decision. She came around to those things. 
she changed her diet. She did those things. And as she was doing it, she was realizing until finally that one day when she said, you know, I still don't understand why you've made the choices you've made. However, you are surrounded by people that love you. You know where your water comes from. You know where your food comes from. Maybe you weren't so dumb after all. <laughs> I mean, basically, that was the way it went. And, you know, that was an incredible way to end that, that, you know, that she's gone on now. But to know in my heart that uh, she understood. It may not have been a walk that she could have taken, but she understood. And that meant a lot to me. still does. Thanks for asking. Yeah, do you know, one of the things that I've learned about you during this winter season, when you get to write more and put out more on your blog, is how deep your peace building work goes, not just in the philosophic or conceptual sense, which I'd heard you speak about before. You're very articulate on the very, the many layers of how to build peace with the land, with each other, with cultures that have been very violent towards each other. But one thing that comes up in your writings, which I am gaining a deeper understanding of, is this work of building peace right where we are with people like our mothers and our uncles and our cousins. And for me, that was very profound because uh, I, like many people in this country, my family is not all cut from the same political, social political worldview cloth. We hold a lot of different opinions and having those conversations is very difficult and yet very essential. Would you speak a little bit about the importance of conversation to your work of, of working for peace and justice? Yeah, but I'd almost like to back up to the most important piece of that. And that is that conversation with yourself. And that is making peace with yourself. And that is, you know, uprooting the doubts. Because sometimes we engage in conversation, but we ourselves are feeling doubtful. So then when someone exposes that doubt to us, then we feel shame or we lash out or something. So to be absolutely, to get ourselves to a point of such clarity. This is why I love this day, Martin Luther King. We happen to be talking today and this is you know, his day. And I love going back to his his work because I can see that this man made so much effort to reach clarity in him in his own self. I mean, he knew what he was up against, not just from the government, not just from angry whites. He knew what he was up against, even with his own people when he spoke out about uh, Vietnam and poverty. He knew, but he, he went ahead anyway because there was such conviction and strength. And that's where we find the first piece. That piece has to be in place. And that has been my first pursuit in my life. That has been my, my, a pursuit of mine. And I've had great help from many sources to cultivate that and fall in love with that. And then from that, then wherever we find ourselves, you know, now I found myself on a farm. And I love it here. I can't imagine living anywhere else, however simplistic it may be to many people. But wherever we find ourselves, we can weave that piece. And I, I'm counting on that. I believe, that's why I loved that you were putting this radio show together. When I saw it and it was love and revolution, I thought, perfect, perfect. And, you know, the two of you being able to bring this to people, any step that we can take, you know, any step that we can take to make that voice of our humanity, our mutual humanity, to make that loud and clear 
And then, yeah, wherever you are. I mean, today has been an amazing day before, as I sat here and waited for you to call. You know, there have been many phone calls and many things that happened that keep showing me you're doing the right thing. There were thank yous. There were people offering to help. There were all kinds of things. And this is new. I have not been sought after. (laughs) You know, a lot of times people just thought, you are nuts, you know, in what you're trying to do. But it doesn't matter. You keep taking those steps. And then whatever conversation's in front of you, give it your all and give it with as much love as you can. And I'm probably saying a little too much, but honestly, I really believe this. I believe that the first advocacy has to be in your own being. That's where it has to happen. Well, I totally agree with you, and I don't think that you're saying too much at all. In fact, I just had a conversation yesterday with one of the women in my life. I have many incredible women in my life that I share with, and we guide each other along. And I had been struggling with something that was very clear to me from a heart-based perspective, but didn't seem to be as clear logically. And one of the things that she reminded me of is that for as long as she had known me, I had trusted the truth of my own heart and have followed very, very loyally and very willingly and very fiercely where it had led me. And I think that that is the journey that we all have to take back to our own heart Mm. and to allow that to guide the work that we do going forward. And that once we make that journey back to our own truth, back to our own heart, it actually guides us to do the work in a very, very different way. Uh, When I first started doing activism work, I was very young and was very much a part of the protest movement and have had a complete shift over time to where that piece of my work is much smaller than it used to be. And now the part of my work that is the largest is really the promoting what it is that I love, promoting what it is that I believe in. And I think that that is something that we all need to really be focusing on. And we'll be back after a quick break for a station ID and your weekly dose of nonviolence. On this week's nonviolence interlude, I'd like to talk to you about the great law of peace of the Iroquois Confederacy, which is called the Guyana Shagoa. The great law was established 300 years before the United States was formed. Many of the teachings from the great law were adopted into the U.S. Constitution and later into the United Nations. The great law of peace was established by Daganawida, the peacemaker, in collaboration with Hiawatha, who was a hard-won and fiercely loyal ally in the move toward peace. The great law is memorialized in a wampum belt known as the Hiawatha Belt that is still used today to teach the principles of peace that were established under the law. The great law of peace rested on assumptions that were foreign to the monarchies of Europe. For instance, it regarded leaders as servants of the people rather than their masters and it made provisions for the leaders to be removed from power for errant behavior. This was a precursor to the modern impeachment process. The Iroquois law and custom upheld freedom of expression in political and religious matters, and it forbade the unauthorized entry of homes, which are protections found in the current U.S. Bill of Rights. 
It provided for political participation by women and the relative equitable distribution of wealth. The extension of power to women included the authority of the clan mothers to select the chiefs or leaders of the tribes and to direct their action. This balanced the flow of masculine and feminine energies within the power structure, something that is sorely lacking today. The distribution of wealth was based on principles of enough, where each individual had enough to live a life of health, safety, and dignity, where no job or task was held higher than another, and everyone contributed to the overall well-being of the community. The distribution of wealth was based on principles of enough. In my tribe, we call that mamabisu, having enough, where each individual had enough to live a life of health, safety, and dignity, where no job or task was held higher than another, and everyone contributed to the overall well-being of the community. Today, we struggle with issues of income inequality and a gross, skewered distribution of wealth. This is compounded by the overinflated military budget. Currently, America spends 10 times more on military and war than on health care, housing, and education. This is also one of the world's biggest manufacturers and exporters of weapons to countries around the world. This isn't just an American problem. It's a global problem since foreign policies are influenced by weapon lobbyists. This is far removed from the ideas of democracy that this country was founded upon, and it is far removed from the peaceful, balanced existence contemplated in the creation of the Guyana Shagoa, or Great Law of Peace. Regardless of how far we have drifted from the founding principles of democracy, we must turn our eyes to the noble promise of liberty and peace. We can go back to these core values and return to the roots of these timeless teachings. One way to do this is to commit to teaching the children a more humane path forward. In Article 24 of the Great Law of Peace, the chiefs were charged with being mentors of the people for all time. They were to be examples against anger, offensive action, and criticism. Their hearts were to be full of peace and goodwill, and their minds filled with a yearning for the welfare of the people. They were required to have endless patience in carrying out their duty. Their firmness was to be tempered with tenderness for the people, and neither anger nor fury was to find lodging in their minds. All their words and actions were to be marked by calm deliberation. With such committed focus, it is clear to see why Ben Franklin and the Founding Fathers had such a deep respect for these indigenous teachings. Imagine, what would the world look like today if foreign policy was created with this kind of respect, honor, and statesmanship? Indigenous wisdom remains strong in the Americas. The question is whether the world is ready to embrace that wisdom. Placing the health of the whole above the individual and taking care of our environment are true indigenous values worth emulating. When you know your nonviolent history, it can change your life and it can change your view of the world. You're listening to Earth and Sky on Hawk Henry's Keeping the Fire CD. You can find more of his music at www.hawkhenrys.com. And now let's return to speaking with Dina Eccles of Echo Valley Farm. One of the other things that I was reading in your blog was talking about um, you had this Vendana Shiva quote 
that talks about governments being left behind and the people will walk mm-hmm. ahead of them and that the governments will have to follow. So if the people are walking ahead of them and they're walking in a heart-based way and the governments have to follow, you know, what will that look like? So when you think about that and you think about the other, the other thing that you had was about the emperor being called out by the child and allowing the child to leave, the one that called out his nakedness and the illusion um, being allowed to leave. So what happens in the world? And this is a question that I like to ask is, what happens? What does it look like from your perspective in your imagining when we allow that heart-based movement to lead us forward? That's a really interesting and sweet question. I'm not sure that it'll look very differently than it looks now. There will always be suffering. There will always be calamity of some kind. There will always be death. There aren't ways of stopping some of those things. But if, if as you said so sweetly, the, the heart can lead again. If we can allow that, because for so many generations now, so many centuries now. That has not been the case. And we have been dwarfed. We've allowed the voice of anger and separation and fear to dominate. So if that can, if we can take this turn, and I believe with everything in me, I believe we can. If we can take this turn, I don't know that we'll know how it's going to look. I don't even want to put anything on it. Let it, let it be, you know? I was watching this fairy tale the other day. I don't even remember the name of it. It wasn't very good anyway. But the, the interesting thing was at one point, because darkness took over, everything died. But the minute love started to wake up again, everything just started to come back to life. And I, there's something in me, not, not realistic, but I really believe that this could happen. I really believe that if we do as you said, and I think we can, we don't. We haven't got a clue how it'll look because we've been steeped so long in darkness. It'll be like when the light really hits us. I don't know how it'll look, but I know it'll be a heck of a lot more fun than it is right now for so many people. I'm having a good time. I refuse to have, not have a good time. Uh, one time, a, a wonderful man came here, Sammy Rizzuli. He's the founder of the Muslim Peacemakers, and we walked to the top of one of the hills here, and he was just getting to understand how we were living here. And he said to me, your community, because of the choices that you've made on how to live, your community will always experience joy, even if it's in hardship. So maybe Sammy is summing up how it will be. That is really beautiful. And, you know, one thing you said early on in the show is that Echo Valley Farm is about people relearning, and not just relearning farming, but relearning how to be, as Sherry said from Aldo Leopold, in community with the land, that we are part of this community. And as we enter a time where the climate crisis is intensifying, we're feeling the effects of it more and more all across the country. How do people relearn how to be a part of a community that is actually in turmoil right now? So we're not just entering into this peaceful, beneficent, wonderful community that's stable and self-assured and has all its things lined up perfectly. We're being asked to enter into community as a way of healing, a way of coming back to 
looking very starkly at our relationship with this earth at a time when it itself is in upheaval. When you bring people to the land to be in community, how does that unfold? What is that like for people? It's been so different for for everybody. You know, some people have come here and they've walked on the land or gone to the top of the hill and they'll cry, they'll feel something, and then maybe we'll never see them again. But I know that they felt something. And then for others, you know, they they it's it's very interesting because there's so much that pulls us back. Fears about our retirement. You listen to the radio and how much money do you have and how are you prepared for what's coming in your old age. So that affects that generation. Then you have the people who are very young and they are girdled by their parents who said, I just paid for your education. You just became a whatever. You better get out there and do it. Those kind of people show up here and they're torn. Believe me, it's amazing. Because their heart, they're like, oh, this is incredible. I love being here. But then that that thing, and I know, I understand it. Because it lived in me. I had to make a decision at some point in my life. How is it that I want to live? Not who, what, am I, what checklist of, am I fulfilling of something outside of myself? How do I want to live? So people are really, really torn. They're really torn. Different generations, I see them, I watch and I don't know how it'll play, but I know that we have to make this turn. I know that we have to one way or the other. You know, a woman called me today, and I don't get many calls like this, but I'm sitting here, and this is the Echo Valley Hope line. Echo Valley Hope is our nonprofit, and I guess it's listed charitable organization, and she called. I'm looking for a place to do service. You know, I would like to volunteer. Do you have something like that? And I said, well this isn't exactly what we're doing, but, you know, we are going to have this teen drop-in next week, and we could have some help. You could help if someone's going to teach kids how to make pizza dough. and You could help wash and do dishes, whatever. But the more we talked, and I could hear voice faltering, and it turns out that she's going to be evicted at the first, the first of the month coming up. And it was really something to be able to let her just express all the hardships and just to listen and know that I'm probably be able to help her in some way. But really what struck me and I reason I, and I said to her, you are going to be fine because the first thing you asked was how can I help? You know, I mean the cabin fever thing is real around here. You know, you get to a point where you just want to get out. And she said that she said, I just need to go somewhere and help. I just need, and that's our true nature. So if people can be true to their nature, the real nature, then that's what I think, that's where I think the solution lies. I think that's so important because I see, I mentor a lot of young people and I have a lot of friends who have invested in an education that puts them on a specific career track. And then they feel honor bound to work within that track, even though it's not really where passion lies. It's not really where their heart draws them. And I think that one of the things that is really beautiful about what you just said is that there needs to be a place where everybody can contribute something where they feel valued. And it doesn't matter what that is. And it doesn't matter how it lines up with these ideas that we have about what social success means. 
but really to just have a place where they can provide something that comes from their own true nature, that comes from their own creative truth, that is meaningful to them in some small way, that makes them feel valued and a part of something and a contributor. And there aren't a lot of places that allow for that to happen because our social structures have become so skewered by Mm. capitalist models and false ideas of success and false ideas of what it means to be a good functioning human being. And I really love that. I was looking at your website that you guys have are part of the WUFA program Mm -hmm. and that you have internships coming up. So can you talk about what types of opportunities are there for people to come and work with you at Echo Valley? Oh, we have a lot of opportunities uh, if people are interested in farming and if they're interested in social activism, social justice work in the way that we do it. Because I'm, I'm, I'm very much like you. I'm not really interested in being against things so much as being for it. But then when you're called to come to a rally because they want to take the mounds down, yeah, you you know, I want to be able to be there too. But to keep that voice going, I'm definitely open to people coming here who can see the whole vision as one thing. But in terms of uh, some people just want to farm. We have a beautiful apple orchard that can be maintained. We have sheep. We have goats. We don't sell to market. Uh, the, more and more, the sheep fiber is used in our fiber arts work that people here do. Uh, we're growing the Chinese herbs. We have a drying shed for teas and things. We have a commercial kitchen, which right now, I told you, there's only seven of us living here. So we rely very heavily on woofers and uh, slow travelers and people who come through and want to help us. But at the same time, for those people who are interested in making this really evolutionary turn in about living in community, not from your head, but really... You know, what is it that, that is your passion? How would you like to contribute and be contributed to? Um, the door is wide open for people, any age, because everybody is capable of participating. And we've seen that over and over again. So um, that's, what, that's what's available to us right now. Annie, my Navajo friend, uh, left me with a very big dream before she passed because she called me one day. She had been here to Echo Valley and really loved it. And she said, you know, you should be getting lands all around the country and running it like Echo Valley. And my first reaction was, you know, <laughs> I don't have a penny. <laughs> Everything that I had has been put into this place. But then I realized it was it was a prayer, her vision and her prayer. And so I still hold that possibility, too that other people who have land who uh, aren't farming it necessarily, you know, might consider doing something similar. Because I could see for some people, they don't want to be in Wisconsin in this this climate at this moment. But they love being here in the summertime. I have a lot of people like that. <laughs> They'll say, well, we'll see you next summer, Dina, but not, 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 not winter, you know. But if we had places around the country where people could dabble and experience and learn again, because it is that... We do need to remember who we are, individually and as a people. So so whatever we can do to provide those opportunities for people, let's do it. 
Well, Dina, I can actually relate to you an inspiring story from your vision with Annie and the work that she had a prayer for you to do, which is that I came to Echo Valley Farm in May last year, one of those glorious times to come to Wisconsin. And then um, my family, which involves my four other siblings and I who steward and own a, a bunch of land in northern Maine, have had a series of phone calls since then about how we're going to steward this land. Due, I think, in part to the influence of Echo Valley, we are talking more and more in terms of how can we share this resource with the whole community? How can we look at sustainable practices that don't just involve our own family farm, our own family, but also a whole community, including this Aldo Leopold concept that keeps cycling around of the community of the land? So it may not be that you have to go around and buy all the land, but that you need to connect with the people who are looking for another model, another option. Here's a question for you, though, because all around you, there are these farmers who are selling their lands to sand mines and other mining operations because they don't have the finances. They don't, they don't think they can afford to hold on to their land anymore. How are you doing this differently, and how are you making sense of the financial pressures of, of <laughs> stewarding or owning land? Um. But first, thank you for saying that about your family farm. That's really exciting. That's really exciting. Uh, you know, there used to be an old commercial, never let them see you sweat. And uh, about money is definitely my approach. I operate in a very real degree of trust, not blind faith, but trust. And I try to, you know, work within the means of what we have. You'll see sometimes there are unfinished projects here, and yet we keep going forward with projects like the commercial kitchen. That commercial kitchen will we have small loans on it to to you know pay back, but it's already making a significant uh, amount of money for the farm, and I can see that it's going to happen. I'm I don't I'm definitely not a capitalist. I don't know what I am in that regard. But I don't I don't worship money. I don't feel the need to have money. I know we have to make it in the way the world is set up right now. But if we cannot fear money, if we can understand that really what we do need will come to us, can come to us if we're open. And I don't again I'm not saying that in a trippy way. You you know, you that that analogy of you have to put your sail up if you want the wind to hit it. That that's the way it is. You have to be willing to give yourself. And again, we have been steeped in a culture that has really been full of greed. And greed is a sickness. Greed is not a good thing. There are wonderful capitalists, by the way. Many of them have helped this farm to be established, contribute to Echo Valley Hope, the nonprofit. So it's not about capitalist people are bad. But consciousness, lack of consciousness is dangerous, no matter what we're talking about. So I, how do I do it? I just, I trust. I trust. And if something can't happen because of money, then it can't happen in this moment. But I never put the dream away. Never put the dream away. Because something will happen. Like I'm looking right now out at a little back porch that's off, that's off of my house that, that a friend came this year and helped us put up. And it was done with... Uh, they found two uh, wonderful double-pane glass doors at the dump. And that's, that's my greenhouse door. And it made my cabin 
so much more warm, warmer this year, you know? So there's ways of making things happen. There's a magic that you can tap into that's not magic at all. And I think that's where we need to look. And we need to because the money is shrinking. People, young people can't buy land. They don't get that uh, kind of money. I always say to people, my generation, I'm 60 now. My generation, they threw drugs and money at us. Younger generations, they're just throwing drugs. There's no, there's no money. You know, people are burdened by the debt of, co- of college. Very difficult to take out loans. No one can buy land. So we need to look at the time. We need to sober up and look at the time that we're living in and uh, just keep stepping forward with trust that as human beings, we deserve this. We deserve good lives. We deserve good food. We deserve good water. We deserve good air. We deserve good company. We deserve it. And to, to, just in the same way that you have to till your garden and prepare the soil, you have to do that with your life. You can't bemoan anybody because it's all available to us. Yeah, and don't you think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier where we find a space for everyone to feel valued by contributing what they find meaningful to themselves personally, that when we go back to this way of living that's closer to the land, our value structure shifts, we need less. And we put different weight on different things in regard to their worth and their value. And so when we can extricate ourselves from this system that tells us more and new and better and faster is the way to go and we can slow down and we can start really living consciously we really get a better sense of what we actually need in life whether it be personally you know emotionally spiritually psychologically you know what we need physiologically to be able to live and to be comfort and that changes once you start having that different relationship with yourself and with the land, and with the world around you, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely, and you bring to mind, because a lot of times people, you know, they do also reject that that you have to live rurally. They want to live in an urban situation, and I completely understand that, particularly young people. And and it reminds me of someone who, again, I learned so much from, and that was Grace Lee Boggs out of Detroit. And Grace really understood the need for community. In her hundred years, she really honed the importance of that. And she shifted so much. And we have to allow for that shift in each one of us. First, we have to allow it in ourselves. Am I happy in the way that I live? Do I feel compromised in the way that wherever I live? And how can I rectify it? How can I make it better? Maybe I can't go live on a farm. Maybe it's not what I want to do. But then wherever I am, how can I welcome life? How can I find fulfillment? How can I be a part of the living, you know, instead of sitting and watching television and being upset by things that are happening around me? How can I participate in bringing change? True change. You know, not the stuff of politicians, but uh, the day-to-day influence of people's lives. And the reason my blog is called Let Kindness Win is because the reason I can say some of these things is because of the kindnesses that people have given me. The kindnesses to look at me and say, you know, you're not so bad. You know, you, you have a lot of potential. You know, when I was a child, 
those kinds of kindnesses teaching me things and to just give those kindnesses back. We can do this. We really can. And I'd just like to remind our listeners that we are talking to Dina Eccles, sustainable farmer, incredible blogger, and an organizer for peace. You can find Dina's blog at letkindnesswin.wordpress.com. Dina, would you like to tell our listeners how they can get more information on the other work that you're doing and also send us out with one final thought? Well, I just want to say this has been a wonderful conversation and I'm very grateful to you for doing what you're doing. People can find uh, Echo Valley Farm at uh, Wisconsin. You have to put that in there, .com. And our nonprofit is echovalleyhope.org. We're also on Facebook, both The Farm and Echo Valley Hope. And you can see the things we're doing there. I think the the most important thing for all of us is to take the next step. Whatever it is in our lives, wherever we are in our lives, whatever uh, negativity, whatever harm has come to us, whether it be because of race or poverty or abuse of some kind, to remember that regardless of all of those things that have occurred, that just that we can heal, that the land can heal, that we have this connect interconnectedness among all of us and with this earth, and that as we do that, whatever step we take, everything can heal together. We can do this. So that that's really what I feel this this year for me is going to be about is just keep taking those steps every day, whatever it is. Do my best. Be in love. Well, thank you so much, Dina. I am looking forward to seeing you in person at the Kickapoo Valley Reserve on January 30th in person and to have a, another round of deep conversation with yourself and others. Everyone is welcome, so if you're listening to this show, you can come on down and find us. Thank you so much for joining us, Dina. Oh, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I look forward to listening to you guys every week. Thanks this week to our guest, Dina Eccles, and to my co-host, Sherry Mitchell. Our theme song, Love and Revolution, is Words and Music by Diane Patterson and performed by Diane Patterson and Spirit Radio. You can find her great music at www.dianepatterson.org. And you can follow me, Sherry Mitchell, on my Sacred Instructions Facebook page. Love and Revolution Radio is a weekly radio program and your local radio station can broadcast it, if you ask them. We already have several of our fans who have requested Love and Revolution Radio in their local area, and we'd love to bring it to your community as well. You can reach us via the Love and Revolution page on Rivera Sun's website, www.riverasun.com, and we are Love and Revolution Radio on Stitcher, Podomatic, and iTunes. For Love and Revolution Radio... I'm Rivera Sun. Climate change is here, listeners, and as our politicians and businesses are dragging their feet at an unacceptable rate, Dina Eccles and friends are rethinking and restructuring their lives. So, in the spirit of moving toward more sustainable practices, I'll be avoiding the massive carbon footprint of air travel and taking the train to Wisconsin and back, 
by the time we talk to you next week. What if you knew?